You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Nocturnal Animals. Do you ever feel like your life has turned into something you never intended? I'm worried about you. Are you sleeping? You scared me the last time we talked. You know me. I never sleep. All right, everybody, that was the trailer for Nocturnal Animals. And the story is a successful Los Angeles art gallery owner's idyllic life is marred by the constant traveling of her handsome second husband. While he is away, she is shaken by the arrival of a manuscript written by her first husband, who she has not seen in years. The manuscript tells the story of a teacher who finds a trip with his family turning into a nightmare. As Susan reads the book, it forces her to examine her past and confront some dark truths. The story is starring... Amy Adams, Jake Gyllenhaal, Michael Shannon, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Isla Fisher, Army Hammer, Laura Linney, Andre Risenborough, and Michael Sheen. The story is written by Tom Ford and directed by him as well. Kristen, you are joining us here. This is your first review with us. Uh, and we also have Michael Schwartz here. So, Kristen, why don't we pass it off to you? What did you think of Nocturnal Animals? You know, I saw this a couple days after the election results, and I was feeling a little depressed, feeling a little blue, and I went and saw this, and I said, this is the movie I needed. This is the movie that made me happy again, and now I have some vim and vigor in my step, and my best friend looked at me afterwards and said, wow, if that's what makes you happy, you are really, really screwed up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, because because Nocturnal Animals is not exactly a, a film that's going to help you restore your faith in humanity. If anything, it's going to prove you right about how horrible humanity is. Um, I love this movie a lot. I, a, it's beautiful to look at, for starters. The costumes, makeup, uh, cinematography, production design, I think it's all fantastic. But for me, the story is what really sells it. I love stories within stories especially if they're literary, because I read a lot. Uh, So for me, I loved watching Tom Ford play with the stories that he's told before in something like A Single Man, that kind of beautiful people living wealthy lives of quiet desperation type of thing, that that kind of perfume ad um, element. And then you have this other side story that's filmed completely differently and plays out almost like a Sam Peckinpah film which I'm a huge Sam Peckinpah fan. So I I just, I loved every element. I thought everybody in the cast was fantastic. And yeah, this is, this is going to be hard. Keep in mind, my top two films of the year right now are this and Neon Demon. <laughs> so I, I am a fan of really demented, uh, beautifully filmed stories about pretty people this year, apparently. I don't know why, but I, this ranks highly for me. Neon Demon and Nocturnal Animals. Quite the taste you've got there. Yeah, quite, <laughs> quite the one-two punch right there. All uh, right. Michael, what did you think of Nocturnal Animals? 
So I actually needed a couple of days to uh, think about nocturnal animals. I wasn't really sure where my thoughts were going to lie after I saw it, and I've came to the I've come to the conclusion in the days since that uh, I mean this in the best possible way. I think this movie is absolute garbage, but I think Tom Ford is so smart in the way that he handles it that he turns it into something really smart. That's actually, that's a very, very good way of describing it because I think that that is ultimately what he is actually going for as evidenced by the the film's opening credits uh, sequence. uh, Caught me and a lot of other uh, audience members off guard. Oh yeah, dude, everybody was gasping, putting their heads like down, not wanting to look at the screen. I mean, I'm watching the audience members, I'm grinning ear to ear. I thought it was beautiful how everybody was so uncomfortable. I loved it. The theater I go to is made up of a lot of like, you know, like older white couples in their 60s, like a fairly wealthy area. And uh, they're not used to that type of thing. Oh, no. So when that comes on screen, a few people actually walked out in the opening credits. Yeah. What about you, Kristen? Uh, What do you think about the opening title sequence and what it means for at least for Michael's interpretation of the film? You know, it's funny because I saw this in a, a press only screening. So there was only about nine of us in the theater. And I was, I think, the only female. And when those opening credits popped up, all the guys, and these are grown, you know, men, respected critics, start giggling and making fun and laughing. And I had to ask afterwards, and I kind of scared all of them, if they were nubile, hot, young things who were just prancing around the buff, would we be saying, would we be shocked? I think that what's shocking is the fact that they are not beautiful, thin women who are usually put on screen as a feast for male eyes. And considering the plot of the story, if that's what shocks you about this movie, I think it says a lot about us as a culture and how we consume female bodies. But that's just me and my feminist soapbox. (laughs) Well, Kristen, I'm really glad to have you on for this podcast because one of the things that stuck out to me there was that it's one thing if you use that that's opening in a certain way, but I felt like he was using it as exploitation rather than something a little smarter than that. Did you get that? The, I think the, the art element, the fact that it's supposed to be kind of an art installation, does play on that whole element of, you know, art is just kind of exploiting poor people or, uh, you know, unattractive people and having, you know, beautiful, sophisticated, usually thin people kind of mock them. But at the same time, I mean, the the people who are in the opening credits, there's a confidence to them. There's a, a life to them. Sure. It's not a moment of just kind of them getting thrown, you know, certain things. I mean, they kind of own it. And I think that that's what makes it different is that, you know, you're you're watching these women who have probably been told that nobody wants to see them naked, but they are totally comfortable in their own skin that they can do that. So I didn't see it as as exploitative. I could definitely get that argument, though. Um, I saw it more as kind of like a screw you to the wealthy people who make the decisions about what is beautiful. All right. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. So I, it's so just to help out our audience members here um, that are listening right now, the scene that we're referring to is the opening credits with uh, these older, uh, heavier women that, like Kristen said, don't typically have the 
uh, male sought after bodies and they are completely naked dancing on the screen in slow motion and you're seeing everything like a band uniform yeah you're seeing everything ba- uh, bounce around there's uh, glitter being thrown in the air it to me it reminded me a lot of something that like I feel like if he were alive today I feel like Stanley Kubrick would have done something like yeah. this it reminded me of something David Lynch would have done that too actually that's a good comparison as well I think it's it's great to compare those opening credits and again without spoiling anything right now to the story within the story. And it for me to just kind of go off the gender train right here, I, I know a lot of women who have been talking about, you know, the, the opening credits and how men have been responding. But at the same time, and I've, again, I've talked to a lot of ladies about this. We all agree that Aaron Taylor Johnson is like the sexiest part of this movie. And he plays <laughs> a complete psychopath, non-redeemable horrific human being and at the same time we kind of had to ask ourselves like wow that's kind of screwed up as well it's literally the inverse yeah exactly is fascinating so i I don't agree michael that it's exploitive i think that it's really um deep and i think it's very thematically layered into the story and it also gives us that prelude of how to approach the story early on. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of graphic stuff. Yeah, you're going to see stuff that's going to shock you. Look deeper. You know, that's that's the, the message I think that he's ultimately trying to say. I did think for a minute that it was trying to make some statement about like, this might sound a little silly, but like the beauty within or the beauty on the inside, outside, whatever it is. I was just going to, I was just going to say that. I think he's really commenting about how, you know, you go back to kind of um, Victorian type of stories where the beauty of a person's out, you know, physical looks were supposed to mirror their insides. And this movie is playing on a lot of, again, to compare with with Aaron Taylor Johnson, that element that physical attractiveness and a person's soul are two totally different things in a lot of ways. Exactly. And it's so funny you say that too, because that applies to the Amy Adams character in the film and how she's, I, I love Amy Adams. I'd marry Amy Adams if I could. She is just the most adorable thing. I just I love her to death. And she's also an amazing actress. She's so freaking talented. Uh, just I adore, I adore her. She has such range. I went back to watch Enchanted this week, which is still my favorite performance of hers. And she just, to go from that to something like Nocturnal Animals, that takes a lot of skill. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And like I was saying, like I love her so much that when I watch her in this film, by the end of the movie... I hate her as a person. Uh, it completely makes me do a 180 on her. And it's because also uh, what Tom Ford is playing with in this movie a lot is he's playing a lot with the idea, and it may sound cliche, but just the idea of following your heart and not letting society um, input its viewpoints upon you to make you um, ch- change your mind and you know uh, have an impact on your decision-making process. And that once again, plays into like the opening credit sequence, uh, society's perception of the human body, society's perception of what it is that we should be wanting out of life, society's perception of the nature of revenge even, and how Jake Gyllenhaal in the story, within the story, is seeking revenge, and then also in real life, uh, how he's also possibly seeking revenge, or is he? We don't really necessarily know. Um, And there is an ambiguous ending that uh, we will be talking about afterwards that, upon leaving the theater, just stayed with me. Stayed with me. Originally, I was going to give this film 
a slightly lower rating because I'm with you, Michael. At first, my initial reaction to the movie was, well, I was like, oh, that was a pulpy, you know, trashy film. But upon thinking about it so much more, I just like started to understand and realize just how goddamn smart Tom Ford is, not only in the visual sense, but in the thematic sense as well. I honestly believe that if enough people give the film a chance, he could be looking at a best adapted screenplay nomination for this for sure. It's definitely well written. Yeah. There's a scene that takes place uh, on the highway uh, with the Aaron Taylor Johnson character. That is just absolutely a masterclass in suspense and dread. Are you talking about early in the film when we first meet the Jake Gyllenhaal character? Yep. Okay, that sequence, which probably goes on for about 10, 15 minutes, right? Oh, it's long, yeah. Yeah, that is one of the great sequences of the year. Yeah, that that is pure, again, if you've seen something like Straw Dogs, which there's a lot of comparisons yes. to Straw Dogs. Yes. Uh, that scene is just terrifying and again it's it's why i think gender plays so well with this film because how jake gyllenhaal's character responds to how things play out especially early when it first when they first interact when they first the two um characters when he first meets aaron taylor johnson and how isla fisher reacts isla fisher being a female she knows how these situations end and the fact that she calls that from jump i think says a lot about how men and women kind of go into situations that they don't know the outcome. And Isla Fisher's playing on the all too real realities of what happens as a woman in those situations. And that scene, I was just like waiting. I was on the edge. I'm like, look, I already know. We don't, you don't need to tell me how we get to D. I know it's going to happen. I think that, that that scene is just the master of tension right there. Yeah, that, that was very, very well done. Did anybody find it weird that um, Isla Fisher was cast in the story within the story and not Amy Adams, considering that we see Jake Gyllenhaal within the story in the story. I almost thought that was a bit of levity because most people confuse Isla Fisher and Amy Adams all the time. Hmm. I see. I think I, I think Isla Fisher actually put her Christmas card. She put Amy Adams in her Christmas card this year as her, (laughs) as the joke, because a lot of people confuse the two of them. That is really funny. (laughs) Well, I think if you had had, if you had Amy Adams in that role, it would have been a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. I almost started to wonder if we were supposed to see Amy Adams as Isla Fisher or the daughter. Because I, I didn't know if it was literal, if it was metaphorical. And I think you can make the argument that Amy Adams is kind of both characters in that story. Um, but I think it was I think it was a bit of levity to get the, the woman that's usually commonly confused with her to play her well speaking of being commonly confused though did everyone notice that amy adams did indeed have a daughter in the present day and wasn't that the same actress that played a daughter within the story no it's not the same actress oh yeah it's not the same actress i did i i've looked online and there's arguments on imdb that that is some type of dream that she's having that 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 daughter in reality quote-unquote doesn't exist um, and because there's a part at the end of the film where Amy Adams makes a decision and you're led to believe that that decision has been made and that essentially that scene should not exist. I'm trying to be really vague here because I don't want to spoil it, yep. um, which would make sense. But at the same time, I always interpreted that scene as she was going to make that decision. She was caught in the act and she did not go along with it. I mean, there's just enough there 
to make a say one way or the other without ever really being definitive. See, now I'm going to just say this because I was talking to Michael about this off air that I thought that the daughter was Army Hammer's child. Oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> there we go. There you go. I was go. very confused, and I'm glad that other people are too because I thought I'd have just missed something. But this is a fascinating aspect of the film is that it plays very much like a written novel does, and there is room for interpretation with this, which I love. And that also is a great quality of Tom Ford as a director in this movie because, you know, we talked a lot about the set design, the costumes, the makeup. He is much like uh, Cooper. Brick, maybe not in terms of the way he shoots, but in terms of how he wants everything to have layers and he wants everything to have meaning behind it. You know, what does this color represent in this given scene? What does this uh, action mean over this? You know, he is a very meticulous director. And I think it also shows in the quality of his writing here as well, in that it is able to get us to come away with multiple interpretations of a single scene. He, you know, some people will say that he's not being clear or he's being too ambiguous. No, he knows exactly what he's doing here. And God, it's only his second feature. It's all intentional. It's whether or not yeah. we grasp what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to give props to Amy Adams because I... I've argued with a lot of people about this in Arrival because part of my issue with Arrival was much like my issues with Sicario, who which is both uh, Danny Villanueva, um, that you have this kind of emphasis on the returning to gender stereotypes. So in Arrival, it's Amy Adams is kind of like this ultimate mother figure trying to sacrifice everything in order to have a child that we, we find out eventually... Um, things will happen to. Um, whereas in here, Amy Adams' character is kind of like the de character desperate to avoid being a mother, which I think is just a great contrast that she's playing both of them at the same time. Because as a, a, as a female, you know, again, going back through the whole gender disparity thing, she has that scene with Laura Linney and as a, as a woman, you're told that your greatest influence should be your mother, that everybody should want to be their mothers, but yet no woman wants to be their mom. And for Amy Adams' character that manifests in so many different ways that society dictates she needs to be one way and she doesn't want to, but then, you know, the society always, the status quo always wins. So I think that that's a great little contrast that she's in two very similar movies with two vastly different depictions of motherhood. <laughs> She only shows up for one scene, but I thought Laura Linney actually slayed it in that scene. She is phenomenal, and I think it's I think it's really sad that Tom Ford had to Google actresses still working over fifty in order to find her. Well, there was something going on with that role because when they first started the movie, I think Kim Basinger was originally cast as her. She was. She was. And uh, yeah, Laura Linney's very good. I think this is just a result of my own expectations, hearing how everyone was going on about her. And I knew it was one scene, but I thought it was going to be like a Beatrice straight, totally dominate the scene. And she's very good in here. I just think I may have been expecting a little bit more. When you first see her in the trailer, you sort of get an idea of what you're going to get with the hair and everything and the accent. That uh, when I just saw it in full here, I wasn't as impressed as I was expecting to be. Hmm. Yeah, I hear you on that one. What did you guys think of um, of Michael Shannon in this? Yeah, so he comes in later as a detective when this mystery is going on with the Jake Gyllenhaal character. And Michael Shannon is one of these, one of these actors who I consider to be 
a reincarnation. Oh, it can't be a reincarnation since he's still alive, but <laughs> a new version of uh, Christopher Walken. Oh, okay. He comes in and sort of like adds his own twist to the character. Like it's written one way and he'll play it that way, but it'll add something that makes it his own. It's not like the way that he delivers his dialogue, but it's like the eccentricities that he puts into the performance, which I always find interesting. I always think it's the intensity of his eyes. He has such an intensity to him that is so intimidating. And he's also giant. He's so tall. He like towers over everybody all the time. Yeah. So I think it's that uh, quality of him that makes him very unique. But yet there are times in the movie where um, the seriousness and the darkness of this film starts to turn into camp almost because of his performance in many ways. Although you could also argue that the Laura Linney uh, character also does that as well. And there were moments of extremely dark comedy that came uh, out of Michael Shannon's performance here. Yeah, uh, he's good. I mean, he adds his usual thing to it. Again, I may have been expecting more from what I've heard before going in. I don't know that I would give him like a nomination for this, even though I think some people are backing him for that. But I mean, he does his thing. He's very good. What do you think, Kristen? Yeah, Michael Shannon is kind of the film's only attempt at levity. And it's great to watch it, especially in terms of the fact that it's a story within a story. So you're supposed to be seeing every facet of masculinity in here because of how um, events play out between Jake Gyllenhaal and, and Amy Adams. So... Michael Shannon is just kind of this, again, going back to Peckinpah, this old school lawman who is the apotheosis of machismo, who's kind of like, I don't play by the rules. Uh, I I flaunt the Miranda warnings, Um, you know, all of that. And it's great watching Jake Gyllenhaal act opposite him because you understand that he's the the complete 180 from where Jake Gyllenhaal's character within the story, within the story, um, has started. But that's what he could become, this man with with kind of nothing to lose um, and also no one around, you know, to, to care about him. It's a very sad and lonely existence that Michael Shannon kind of portrays beautifully. Let's uh, touch upon um, Mr. Jake Gyllenhaal as well, um, uh, an actor that, I feel like pretty soon he's going to become the next Leonardo DiCaprio. Everybody's just going to be saying, get that man his Oscar at a certain point. This was unlike any other role I've ever seen him do before. He's underrated in this. Yeah, he I've never seen him play such a weak character before. Um, uh, Such a sensitive character, really. Um, That, like Kristen said, is the exact opposite of everything that Michael Shannon represents. I found him to be quite... Uh, yeah, I would say underrated, Michael, actually. Uh, he is quite good in this, and I don't think people are going to be able to recognize that, but he is, he he's he's great. He's always great. <laughs> yeah, Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal gets kind of the, the hardest part, because he's playing dual roles, essentially. And I, again, and I hate to keep harping on the same things, because I keep wanting to say, like, feminism, 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 um... But, you know, looking at that through a female lens, Jake Gyllenhaal kind of plays, you have all these different depictions of of masculinity. Michael Shannon's kind of the tough lawman. Aaron Taylor Johnson is kind of this weird, dangerous, yet oddly sexually compelling, yet horrific kind of character that you're drawn to, but you know you shouldn't be. He's kind of the bad boy taken to, like, the horrific real-life extremes. But then Jake Gyllenhaal starts out when he's Edward, which is Amy Adams' ex-husband. 
Um, he is this sensitive, romantic guy that you're like, oh, every girl, if you watch, you know, Moana, a Disney movie, you know, type of, he's a Disney prince. And Laura Linney tells them, it's in the trailer, you know, the things you love will become the things you'll hate about him. And as the movie progresses, you realize this is a thin-skinned, kind of unambitious, well, overly ambitious to the point that he doesn't do anything type of person that as a female, you're kind of like, yeah, you know what? You can be sensitive and sweet all you want, but we need to have like some drive. You need to, you need to have goals. <laughs> and then, you, you know, see- it's also interesting too, that the Amy Adams character comes from a life of privilege yes. as well. So there is that expectation that her life is always going to be this way. And then when she does find something that's, uh, that's above that, that's real, and this is like kind of like the fantasy element of, you know, true love and how we can overcome this. And, you know, it's almost like um, that Jack and Rose quality of Titanic, oh, yes. which I, <laughs> I can't stand in many ways sometimes of how she falls for him. And despite that, he has no money or anything like that. Um, and she's going to drop her entire life for it. You know, I... I the, the Amy Adams character in this um, gets whisked away by him and she does get uh, wrapped up in this romantic Prince Charming-esque aura that he gives off. But I found the struggle, the, the struggle within the Amy Adams character to be something that is understandable and quite heartbreaking also. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't I didn't hate her for it because I understood it. I, I I understood where it was coming from. And I'm not saying I side with her. I'm not saying she made the right decision in, in doing what she does in the movie, but I, I could totally understand at the very least, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. I mean, we all kind of love the whole concept of, you know, we're going to live on love and love's all you need and all of these kind of hallmark terms. But what I think Tom <laughs> yeah, Ford right. does... What Tom Ford does very skillfully is kind of say, that's great, and that's a great concept, but sometimes when you're dealing with what society expects of you and what you expect of yourself, and just the realities of a relationship, which you need to have, you know, money and security and sustainability, those those oblique elements don't work. And it also plays out in his story within the story where he wants to be the nice guy. He wants to talk it over. He doesn't want to engage and be that guy who's going to start throwing punches. And unfortunately, in that story as well, his methods of conflict resolution are not sustainable in a situation where you have this very kind of blind, oppressive force that's going to do what it wants no matter what you think. All right, then. Um Let's pass it off to final thoughts, a great out of 10, and Oscar potential. Michael, let's start it off with you. Yeah, so uh, like I said, this is very well done in the way that it takes material that's uh, you know a little trashy and pulpy, like we said, and puts a clever twist on it. I don't know that I find it as deep as uh, you two seem to. I think it's more of a fun genre exercise in some ways that leaves you with stuff to think about. But then the more I think about it, the more I'm like, wait a second, I don't know if this is really all it's made out to be. So I'm going to give it a grade of a 7.5 out of 10. I think it's a interesting film to analyze, and uh, people can decide for themselves what, what they want to take out of it. As for Oscar potential, I'm not sure that this hits with the Academy. Maybe there's a day where Michael Shannon gets a nomination in Supporting Actor. 
if he has enough goodwill and possibly adapted screenplay since the category is so weak. But I would not be surprised to see this go home uh, or on nomination day with nothing. All right, then. Kristen. Yeah, I love this movie. As evidenced by my, my rambling here, I love this movie a lot. Uh, I am very jealous at some of the critics' guilds that have gotten screeners for it because I want to rewatch it and show it to everybody I know. Um, yeah. And it's not here in Sacramento yet, so I can't even show my, my family. Um, but I love this movie so much. I, I think everybody's great. Uh, I've called it the sexiest ensemble cast of the year. Um, and I'm including Michael Shannon because when I didn't, people got mad at me. But apparently... Michael Shannon is like a sex object. I don't know. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to give this a, a 9.5 out of 10. This is easily one of my my favorite films of the year. Um, in terms of Oscars, I'm a bit more optimistic. I have it in five. I have it in screenplay, cinematography, costume, and makeup and hairstyling as well as score. Do I think it will get all of those? Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be much like Michael said. I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes home empty-handed. But I have it in some places that I, I think it would be logical to see it in because there's been a lot of praise in terms of how it looks and how it sounds. Fair enough. Um, I think that Nocturnal Animals is a film that I will continue to revisit over the years. I think there is a lot of depth to this film. Um, I think that Tom Ford as an artist, the way that he utilizes color, the way that he frames his shots, also invites for more um, uh, more of an, uh, an analysis as well. And I think that um, this film is a genre exercise. I also think it's a social commentary. I think that it's filled with some of the best ensemble work I've seen this year. It's a dark film, though. Like, Seamus McGarvey's cinematography is some of the darkest I've seen in any movie uh, this year. The The night scenes are pitch black, literally. Um, the score by uh, Abel Korsanowski, uh, I totally just butchered that name, uh, but he also did the music for A Single Man. There's like a haunting classical element to it that calls back uh, films of, uh, you know, the past years that I really, really loved. And it has like this, just this amazing soaring quality to it. Um, art direction, costumes, everything about this film is just gorgeous. This is, this is a very ugly yet gorgeous film. Once again, alluding to the opening title credit sequence that we were discussing before. And thus, it is also one of my favorite films of the year. I would give it an 8 out of 10. And as far as Oscar potential, I do think this gets into Best Adapted Screenplay. I think Michael Shannon is less likely, but I do think he is in contention. Um, and I would like to see the score uh, get some sort of recognition as well. I would really, really love to see that happen. But our conversation with Nocturnal Animals does not stop there. We are now going to head into spoilers. So for those of you that have not seen the movie, please do stop listening right now. Uh, but for those that have seen the movie, come with us as we talk about spoilers for Nocturnal Animals. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Nocturnal Animals, this here is a spoiler section one last time for you to turn around and run away. Uh, because the stuff that we are going to talk about is so dark to the point that it might just make you run away. Uh, basically, Jake Gyllenhaal's family is brutally murdered, brutally raped as well. And it's like the most horrific pain imaginable that this guy is feeling. And it's just so 
so heartbreaking to see a sensitive guy like this get broken down, but he almost, in a sense, gets reborn in a sense, or at least that's what we keep thinking. At least that's what I kept thinking. I kept thinking that like that kind of pain was going to drive him to become somebody different, but he doesn't change necessarily from it. In fact, by the end of the movie, in the novel, he ends up accidentally killing himself <laughs> you know and like yeah. the, what is the clumsiest thing i've ever seen in my life and you see him struggling at the very end when he finally shoots the aaron taylor johnson character yeah it's like how can you not shoot this guy how he's, thinking, he's like should i do it should i not and well, of course you should he just killed your wife and daughter brutally like why wouldn't you it was it was frustrating but my god was it ever so fascinating too <laughs> Well, I think what what works there is that for most of the movie, he's driven by guilt because when and I mentioned this in the non-spoiler section, when they first interact, when they when the family first meets Aaron Taylor Johnson's character, they are he's trying to rationalize. He's trying to be like, hey, guy, you know, where's the police station? What's going on? And he doesn't get the obvious brutally obvious element that this is planned that the intention was to sideswipe them to get them to stop in some way from the minute they discovered that they had uh, a teenage daughter in the car and the entire time the sequence plays out he's just kind of standing there and Isla Fisher's character who has made overtures that these guys are bad news she's a woman in a situation at night she understands where this goes um you know she's the one trying to actively keep it from escalating but being defensive and knowing what's going to happen so throughout much of the movie i he i think he he manifests his guilt um which kind of culminates with his uh kind of breakdown that, that he could have saved them but at the same time for him to change which again plays out on the grander stage of the relationship that he has with amy adams character changing for him is awkward and ultimately fruitless <laughs> because he ends up not being able to avenge his family he ends up killing himself accidentally um and ultimately you know he gets his revenge but it comes at the cost of his own life and it comes at the cost of him essentially realizing he's not a man by societal definitions which i think is what tom ford's really hinting at is what makes a man and a woman in society versus what you want to be are two totally different things i gotta ask this question do you think that uh, Edward writes the ending to his novel with him accidentally killing himself to to give Amy Adams guilt into meeting up with him. Oh yeah, because because she thinks yeah because she thinks that he's she's put him in a place where he wants to kill himself over what has happened essentially and uh, and what we're referring to is uh, the abortion of uh, his child. So I, I love that though because I, that last scene. Oh my god, that last scene. So, so incredible. Uh, she's sitting down at the restaurant waiting for him to arrive. And I kept, I, I you know what? I, I, this was something that like initially when I walked out in the movie, I was a little upset about because I wanted that final meeting. I wanted that final confrontation so badly because I had knew, I had known at that point that we had not seen, uh, Edward, uh, in the present day. And we had kind of been building up to this moment. So the fact that Tom Ford doesn't give us that moment, um, it, kind of also leaves it open for the audience to wonder maybe he maybe he does show up and we just cut away before it happens but i think it's pretty clear that it is a revenge scheme 
um, in, in, in a sense. Um, it could also represent maybe he does eventually kill himself as well. And he wanted her to know that. Yeah, maybe he did it right after he sends the email to her saying that he can meet for dinner. Maybe he gets her hopes up and then kills himself and leaves her hanging at the restaurant. But I love that the book is also a fuck you to her. Like, you didn't think I could ever write something that was gripping and good. Well, here it is. And it's about you and me. Like, I love that. That ending, a lot of, I see comparisons to, you know, the spinning top in Inception. You know, just give it a couple more seconds and it's going to fall or something. Um, but I, I see it kind of, Tom Ford, we talked about playing on that theme of, you know, epic romances and romanticism. I think he's kind of going back to something like uh, Sleepless in Seattle or an affair to remember where you have these two lovers meeting once again after a long time at a location and Tom Ford's kind of saying fuck you to romance in those movies the fantasy element because those characters always show up and they always reunite and they always have a happy ending and he's kind of giving the finger to those movies by saying hey you know what some shit just isn't forgivable and some stuff you're just not going to be able to get over and I think that that ending is is perfect because no matter how good Amy Adams intentions are and I mean I think it goes back to us saying Amy Adams isn't a bad person in this movie Uh, her character Susan isn't a bad person but for Edward he just can't forgive and he's he's not going to so I think that it's a great little screw you to romantic movies it's a screw you to Amy Adams character it's it's so good and let's imagine that he is alive um, if he gets to relish in that uh, that revenge, that is, uh, in effect, com- a completion of his character arc in that here's a guy that couldn't stand up for himself necessarily, um, and yet he does make that stand at the end. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. I- I'd like to think that he's, like, across the street at, like, another restaurant just oh, watching. watching her? Yes. <laughs> just like being Meryl like, Streep and Kramer versus Kramer yes. and Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> Being yes. like, yes, I screwed that bitch. Screw her. I'm going out and I'm going to get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and it's great, too, because they also do a great job of showing how um, her life with Army Hammer is clearly not <laughs> clearly not great. And you know what? He's barely in the movie, but he makes such a presence in it. Like when he just comes on screen with his... You know, his jacket, which I don't even know if that's from the Tom Ford label, but it's certainly like, you know, very stylish, uh, rich person would wear, you know? Yeah, Army Hammer Hammer is kind of this unsung actor for me because I remember telling everybody when Lone Ranger came out, like, that guy's never going to do anything ever. And then I saw Man from Uncle and I pretty much thought like he was the bee's knees and I still I still do um yeah he comes out with that kind of uh, office look uh very tailored with the big pompadour hair and everything and you just kind of get like douchebag right off the the minute like he shows up um and you're supposed to believe that he's cheating on Amy Adams that's what I assumed Yes. Because of the hotel. Um, but when they meet, m- once again, kind of that screw you to romantic films, they meet and it's kind of like this love at first sight moment. The camera shows both of them just kind of taking the other in and he says all the right things. 
But at the end of the day, you know, he's obsessed with material and he's obsessed with the appearance of happiness rather than actually being happy, which I think is so great. And it's exactly what she thought that she was and how her mother thought that she was, but she doesn't turn out to be ultimately in the end. Yes. So good. So, so good. Okay. Well, we've really talked a lot about this one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is... Ah, this is great. Yeah, I mean, I highly recommend people go to see it because there's really stuff that you can get out of it. Whether you like it or hate it, you can still talk about it. Definitely. I do want to read the book. I'm very interested in reading the book now because I want to see if, um, how, how, you know, faithful, whether this is a faithful adaptation or not. So I will be trying to get a copy of that book uh, ASAP. And I also understand, too, that the book is entirely different from the movie. Okay. And, like, there are huge differences. <laughs> so that should be a pretty awesome uh, insight, at least, into what decisions Tom Ford decided to make in terms of changing it. With that said, uh, Kristen, where can they find you on Twitter? I am at journeys underscore film, where you can see all my shenanigans involving writing, classic films, and my blind driving love for sharing Oscar Isaac gifts. and michael where can they find you mike movie and you can find me at next best picture guys thank you so much for listening to this review of nocturnal animals Uh, feel free to check out more on nextbestpicture.com we will see you all next time I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.